Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James, and I'm super pumped to be here with you all. Slide into the diner booth, my friends. Let's get it going. How's your 2022 going so far? Well, I hope so. And if it's not, well, here we are. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, I'm super pumped to be here and kicking it with you all. I have an awesome guest that I want to just jump right into. He has become a dear friend of mine over the last, I would say, two years. We're in a mastermind group together uh, that just tells stories and we critique each other's stories and improve our storytelling ability. And getting to hear bits and pieces of this man's story has just had me fall in love with him more and more. And the first time I ever met him in person, I don't know if I've ever gotten a better hug. I'll be honest with you. Uh, just got me, brought it in for the real thing. And so let me tell you about Dr. James Smith Jr. He passionately works with learners, providing high performance solutions in areas of leadership, authenticity, diversity, and inclusion, personal uh, presentation skills, and personal power. He's authored three books with his last book, No Excuse Guide to Success, being nominated for an NAACP Image Award casual y'all casual dr james possesses ridiculous optimism he makes a he comes up with something called gym pact i think i understand what that means but we'll probably ask him about it anyway he has relentless determination modeled by his mother rebecca nancy smith shout out to rebecca he's the perfect example of this is when he attended pre-k through senior year of high school without missing one single class y'all I need a nap just reading this. I'm excited to get to hang out with him. I'm excited for you to meet him. Let's bring him out right now. Dr. James Smith, Jr. Listen, man, I have never laughed so hard during an introduction. What? I'm dusting off because I just slid into the diner. Okay, I slid in. Let me dust off a little bit. What's up, my brother? My man, what, what a pleasure to see you. Rocking this, uh, rocking a little three piece over here. Always fresh, always fresh, even in the diner, right? Got the top button unbuttoned though, because it's still the diner, right? We can relax a little bit. You know, I, I was considering uh, wearing my tie, yeah. but when I, I got into the diner, I said, no, this isn't about tie. Let me take this off and get comfortable. Exactly. So we're good. We're exactly. good. That, that, you know, that tie is just going to get syrup on it. So take it off. <laughs> it's off. It's off. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. I'm, I'm truly doing great. That's Things are starting to melt in Minnesota, so it's a slushy mess, and it means that it's also ice every time you wake up in the morning, which petrifies me, but uh, we're, we're doing great. I'm carrying my son out to take him to daycare, and I am just walking like a penguin because I was like, you know, it's bad enough when I fall, but holding him, I can't do that. Wow. So, uh, but yeah, but no, we're, we're, so far we're doing so good, man. How about you? How are you today? Man, I, I, I'm good, and I'm especially good because – I grew up in the 60s and the 70s, and during the 70s is when Lionel Richie and the Commodores began to cut their teeth in music, and they made a song that I fell in love with, and I always wondered, who were they thinking about? Who were they thinking about? Now, now I realize they were thinking about you. Oh, a yeah? Crazy like a Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Then I'm easy. There you go. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> <laughs> I 
now I know who they had in mind. Robo, easy mm-hmm. like a Sunday morning. I think you can appreciate this. My dad says, uh, you know, James, there's not enough O's and smooth for you. Uh, <laughs> now I know who Stuart Scott was thinking about when he said cooler than the other side of the pillow. What? That's it. That's it. Booyah. Uh, <laughs> rest in peace to Thank a legend. Thank you so much for welcoming to the diner. Uh, yeah. I look forward to coming back again and again and again. That's it. That's it. I appreciate you, man. You know, since we are in the diner, I'm wondering, you know, a question I always love to start this off with is if we, uh, you know, if if you had the opportunity to have a late night meal and you could go back to when you were younger, maybe, maybe when you used to eat late night meals yourself, but what was your late night go-to meal? You know, you grew up uh, in the, in the Philly uh, arena. Um, and so you're no stranger to a diner. Um, and, uh, and so, but you know, what was your favorite late night move typically (laughs) done three eggs over easy, a little bit of salt and pepper. Now, since I'm older, no salt and (laughs) T-bone medium. What? Three over easy T-bone in a little bit of a real thin, real thin fries. I'm good. I'm good. And keep the cranberry juice coming in the, in the uh, lemonade. Keep it coming. <laughs> sometimes you can mix the cranberry with the lemonade. I'm good. Yeah, we call I'm those good, good nights. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got yeah. steak and eggs coming out here. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, now, if, 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 if they didn't have that, I used to love going to the International House of Pancakes. Mm. And there was nothing like a midnight international omelet. <laughs> omelet with everything on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Green peppers, <laughs> tomatoes, onions, cheese, mozzarella cheese. What? You just you loaded the, the thing came up looking like it was going to explode when it landed on you <laughs> in front of you. Well, at midnight, no one's going to care. You know, I'm walking yeah. out nice and full, ready to go to bed. Ready to go. Keeping that caloric intake up. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and working on that itis. I, you know, I got it. I got uh-huh. it. The itis always... fixed in. Uh, i love that (laughs) i love that so uh and and i'm and i'm here for that too i'm a uh i'm a pancakes guy in the diner which is great Uh, to date the day that we're recording this this is actually national pancake day Um, so a fitting day for us to be in the diner well if i'm going to do pancakes they have to be chocolate chip pancakes yes yes Yep, exactly. Yes. But if I am at IHOP, sometimes I'll get that Cinestack. Uh, oh. Those cinnamon bun ones are pretty, those are pretty good. <laughs> Can you say suicide? A Cinestack, right? Okay. <laughs> good luck with that. Cinecide. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I love it, brother. I love it. So, uh, Dr. James, you you're born and raised. Where exactly were were you born and raised? And and, and tell me a little bit about who who Dr. James was, or just or just James at that point. Should I should I do the Fresh Prince of Bel Air version or keep it very standard? Yeah, if you probably want me to do the, the Fresh, Fresh Prince. Prince it's yeah. West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playgrounds <laughs> where I spent most of my days. But if I do it more traditional, yes, West Philadelphia. I was the oldest of two to James Smith Sr. and Nancy Smith. And that lasted for 11 years. My parents were divorced and mom wore both hats and raised both me and my brother. We're four years apart. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was some journey. Uh, my mother didn't drive and we did not have a car. So when we traveled, it was public transportation, regardless mm-hmm. of the weather. 
And, and James, I remember a number of rainy or winter days when we stood in a phone booth, the three of us waiting for the uh, the bus or the trolley to come or, well, uh, take a taxi cab. But those were some character building days. And to describe my mother, and this is probably before your time, I don't know if you saw the the movie, The Officer and a Gentleman. The Officer and a Gentleman with Lou Gossett, Richard Gere. Uh, Lou Gossett played the role of a drill sergeant, a ridiculously mean, tough drill sergeant. Yeah. And I kid with people that if they ever needed a stand-in for their, that role, my mom. <laughs> they, they, would, they wouldn't skip a beat. They yeah. would not skip a beat. Rebecca Nancy Smith would get in there. And come on, mayonnaise. Come on, mayonnaise. That's what Richard Gere was, mayo. They called him mayonnaise. And But because of that tough love and that character-building love, I attended K-12 without missing a day of school. And she taught me to always don't just sit in the front of the class. Tilt the room. Let them know you're there. Make sure mm. your hand is up. And be a difference maker, game changer. And I didn't realize she was getting me ready for adulthood. Not the way she did. And you mentioned one of my books, The No Excuse Guide. Think about that. No excuses. Tough love parent. They go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. So she yep. was allergic to excuses and I'm allergic to excuses as well. Well, I love that. Well, as a fellow uh, D9 MPHC member, we know a lot about excuses um, <clears throat> and uh, what they mean. So uh, no excuses for sure. Um, they are indeed tools of the incompetent. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, so, yeah, that's incredible. So you're, you know, you said that uh, you and your brother, four years apart, were you all close? Are you close? You know, what's, what's funny, we were close and we are close. Uh, he's actually the CFO for my organization. He's my business partner. And growing up, he was my baseball com- opponent, my basketball opponent, my hockey opponent, football. We would turn our living room and dining room into a multi-unit <laughs> facility where we would play basketball, baseball while mom was at work. And we can turn those couches around, put pillows mm-hmm. down for bases, Puff basketball, full court. <laughs> and that house is still alive today. Those wood, hardwood floors are still intact. They look real small now. They look, they look like the old Boston Garden where yeah, back yeah, then yeah. we were young. It looked like the Houston Astrodome. <laughs> but we did it. We did it. I, I love my brother Rodney tremendously. And he's already always respected me. And I have respected him in kind. So now we get a chance to work to work together every day. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes, sometimes those family working relationships don't work out too well. But it sounds like you and Rodney got it dialed in. Uh, well, that's we awesome. Had, we had to have a, a couple coming Jesus, Jesus <laughs> conversations, though. Uh, As they say, don't get it twisted. Yeah. We had to have a couple come down Front Street. Let's talk about how we're going to do this because mm-hmm. this is a business. Although family business, it's a business, and we both have to be accountable for each other. And and we have, yeah. we have stood the test of time. That's incredible. I mean, you were talking about those experiences of you all standing, what a visual you all huddled in the phone booth waiting for the bus or the cab or anything like that to come, right? Like uh, y'all, y'all been through some stuff. You've seen some stuff, but you know, you, you say they're character building times, but in the moment you don't know that you're building character. It's just life. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, you know, in the, in those moments, did you, uh, 
I guess it, as you look back at those and, and putting yourself back in those in those shoes, uh, did you know that you all had it rough? Did you know that it was you know that you were in a tough spot, uh, or was it something that? You, you know, your mom, the way your mom talked about it was just like, this is where we're at and this is how we're doing it. Like, you I mean, like, you know, what, what kind of emotions were going through you as you yeah. reflected about yourself in that time? James, it was all of the above, all of yeah. the above. Yes, we knew we had it bad, but we believed that others, some others had it worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we were in our, our first place together, and this is the place we lived uh, with my father, um, sometimes I thought, it was 4th of July every day. Why? Because the mousetrap. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mickey and his friends did not do well in our one and a half bedroom apartment that was over top of another house, as well as um, I wish we had partnered with Major League Baseball because when there is rain coming down, the people come out, put the tarp, over the field so it doesn't get wet. Yeah. Wow. When it rained at our house, buckets, buckets. So the Everywhere. buckets were in every room coming down. Where were the grounds crew to come and help us out? So we knew we had it bad, but we were living. Mm-hmm. We were situationally happy. Um, every Christmas, yeah, there was something big under the tree, multiple things. And I'm smiling because I remember the time I realized, okay, there are any kids listening, cover your ears, cover your ears. Now I said, (laughs) when I realized mom and dad, they're Santa. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cause my father asked me to, to go to the bedroom, his bedroom and get his slippers. They're underneath the bed. So I ran in there. I'm like seven, eight, nine years old, slid down, saw the slippers and then a pool table behind the slippers. What? A pool table. Yes. Daddy, mom, Santa Claus. So for the the next year or so, James, right after Thanksgiving, it it was like an Easter egg hunt at my house. I'm looking at every closet under beds, (laughs) under cabinets. I'm like, where's my Christmas gifts? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But my mom would always say to focus on what you have Mm -hmm. and not on what you don't have. So regardless of how bad things got, she said, you have your health, you have a roof over your head, you have love. And I've kept that mindset throughout my life because there, like even when the pandemic started and being a professional speaker and doing a hundred percent of my solutions or my presentations in person, Mm -hmm. initially I started focusing on what I couldn't do. Yeah. Not in front of people anymore rather than focusing on what I could do. And once I made that shift, that's when the business shifted as well. I could do virtual. Mm-hmm. I could coach virtually. I can do everything that I do in person. I could do virtually. And that mindset emanated from 4620 Sansom Street in West Philadelphia, and then eventually Southwest Philadelphia, where we thought we were the Jeffersons moving on up, <laughs> in the kitchen. We moved into a neighborhood that was around the University of Penn, Penn's campus. Yeah, sure. And the uh, character building aspect of that move was that we moved without my father. Mm. My mom's plan was to take us out of school half day because she didn't want us to miss school Mm -hmm. 
and come home, move before my father got home from work. And what led to that move was that my, my father, as charismatic and as friendly, as fun-loving as he was, he also had a bad habit and that he loved to drink. Mm. And when he drank too much, he would eventually come home, wasted, and either fall asleep on the chair, fall asleep on the steps if he didn't make it up those 14 steps to our our, our, our place, or he would come home looking for the alcohol that he would hid, that he would hide underneath chairs and behind toilets and all that stuff. My mom would find it and she would pour it out. And when he realized he she had poured it out, he would commence to wanting to hit her and beat her. Yeah. Well, I saw the domestic violence and I was 11. My mom said, no more. We're out. We're out. And I missed him. Well, put it this way, I missed his good side. He had two sides, an egregious, unfathomable, awful side, an amazing, charismatic, light up the room, Fats, his nickname, Fats, is in the house. And sports, singing, dancing. And James, even speaking, I think I attribute to my dad because mm. he turned me on to the singing group, the Jackson Six. Tito, Michael, Marlon, Jackie, Jermaine, and James. And I would do concerts in the living room. I would hold the brush to sing, get a broom to play the guitar, and set up my G.I. Joe and my Rock'em Sock'em robots and my stuffed animals on the couch. They were the audience. And I was ABC. It's the easiest one, two, three. That's how I was raised. (laughs) <laughs> oh man i love this jackson six y'all catch that y'all ca- i hope y'all caught that uh <laughs> with the broom and the guitar i could oh man you took me right in there i can picture it what a uh, what a powerful uh, what a powerful uh, a turn of events and your yeah, mom having yeah. this the courage to leave yes. Uh, right. And knowing that, knowing that she had to get out. Uh, and, and I also appreciate the way that you talk about your father, right. That, you know, not everybody's completely bad. Um, and he had some really beautiful qualities. What yeah. was it? Uh, what was it that drove him uh, to drinking? Was it, you know, a lot of people don't drink cause they don't, they don't feel like they're in control of other parts of their lives or, you know, what was it that you think sparked the drinking in your father? I, I can only tell you what he shared with my mom because when they got together and got married, he did not drink. He actually went to the service for a bit, was discharged, honorably discharged with some sort of medical injury. But then he went, got his first job and he went to work for a meat packing place. He was a butcher. And he told my mom that he worked in the freezer all day and he froze his butt off and him and his, his co-workers as a way of heating up would go to the local bar, get some drinks to warm up after a day of freezing and that became the routine and the warm up became a way of life to the point where it impacted just about everything he did but he was a functioning alcoholic he was able to go to work on time show up all the time because he's very principled but coming home at night we didn't know what time he was going to get home and james there were a number of times where i would put my knees on the couch look out the window and I could see the train station. And the train station was maybe two and a half blocks from our house, our home. And I would watch him stumble walk, stumble walk, stumble walk. 
in a very five to 10 minute walk, short walk would sometimes take him a half hour. Mm. And I would hear the keys going in the door and then falling, then going in the door and then falling. And eventually he would get in. And of course, kids will be kids. So from time to time when I was outside playing with my friends, one or two of them would say, let's imitate James's dad walking down the street. Oh, and that, no. that, would lead, that would lead to a fight or two. But that was, I would say, from 63, 64, all the way until 72. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I still remember it like it happened yesterday. And this, I'm 60 <laughs> years old now, and that was a long time ago. But it played a role in who I am today. And I think about it to get fuel so that people can see that regardless of the hand you're dealt, regardless of the circumstances, the situation, you are in control of your life. Because James, people will say from time to time, I'm this way because this is the way I was raised. Well, I was raised to be an alcoholic. I was raised to beat my wife. I was raised to do some unfathomable things, but I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I chose the good stuff. Singing with my Jackson brothers, using a brush as a microphone, looking for this is ironic. I use those stuffed animals and my rock and suck and robots and my GI Joes as the audience members. When the pandemic started trending, I did what Major League Sports did. They had cardboard cutouts in the stands. I took pictures of my family members and taped them to cardboard and taped it to my laptop. So I had my family in front of me as I was presenting, similar yeah. to what I did in my adolescence. <laughs> I love that. That's incredible. Yeah, it's so fascinating the way those stories, uh, we all have those little moments where it's like, hey, tell me you were you before you knew you were you, right? And like some of those moments of you holding the the, the brush microphone um, and and like you said, setting up the Rock'em Sock'em Robot, the audience. uh, And, you know, where, where anybody who knows you now are like, of course you did that, right? Of course, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, right? There's a story of me. Uh, there was a stump on, I lived on a, we lived on a corner and there was a stump, a tree that had gotten taken down because it had gotten a disease and uh, we couldn't afford to get the stump removed or <clears throat> they were super expensive or whatnot. So we just kind of did in stages. And so we had this stump there for a while and I would ask my mom every day after school to go outside and sit on the stump so I could say hi to people as they walked by, right? And people were like, of course, of course you did, James. Of course you did. <laughs> you, you obnoxious extrovert. Um, <laughs> um, of so, yeah. course you did. Of yeah. course you did. I, I, I love what your mom said about you going to school, sit in the front of the room, ask questions, make your presence known, tilt the room. Uh, and you didn't know that she was preparing you for the real world. Yeah. And, and there's some people – Dude, when their mom says things like that, they're like, yeah, whatever, mom. I'm sitting in the back of the room and talk to the boys, you know, whatever. Um, but you believed your mother. You leaned into what your mother said. I mean, that's part of that is because you're the oldest and you're there for the rule follower. Um, <laughs> right? <clears throat> but, uh, but you developed this work ethic. And sports were also something that you leaned heavily into. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, you wound up getting really passionate about football, right? Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah, I'll give you this first, and then I'll tell you about my, my love of football. I'm 12 years old. I'm playing for a Little League baseball team, age 10 to 12. Neighborhood team, everyone wanted to play for that team, and it was the the dream of that time, me making the Jayhawks. 
long story real short, the Jayhawks are in the championship. Um, we're tied one game to one, best two out of three. And it's the bottom of the seventh. And, of course, I lead off, and it's my story. I get a hit. I'm on first. And my coach gives me the signal not to steal second. And, of course, I listen, and two outs later, my listening becomes impaired. And I <laughs> I, I did not pay attention to the signals, and I, I stole second. And, of course, he yelled at me. Next batter hits a base hit to center field. I'm rounding third. I get the stop sign. I run right through that stop sign. I'm going to be the hero. I knew this is going to be a story that I can tell as a motivational speaker. I needed content. I was working on content at 12. (laughs) Content at 12. So as I'm rounding third, heading home, the ball from center field runs, moves, soars right by me, right into the catcher's mitt. The catcher is there. He's waiting for me to arrive at home. Mm-hmm. And the funny part about this story is that the catcher at age 12 looked like he was 36. <laughs> James, he had a mustache. He had a beard. His chest protector looked like a, a bib. Uh, I, I, I swear he looked like Shaquille O'Neal would look at 12. That was baby Shaq. Baby Shaq. And through the course of the season, whenever he played that team, I would tell our coach, check his birth certificate. Check his birth certificate. That's a man. That's a grown behind man. Anyway, I knew if I slid, I would be out. If I ran in and just stood up, I would be out. There's only one thing to do. My mother said all things are possible. You got to make it happen. Tilt the room. The only thing to do was to knock him down. Little skinny Jimmy with the big head was going to knock down Baby Shaq. And I ran in there and he had the ball and I hit him and like ice cream on a cone <laughs> on a 300 degree day. I just slithered down his body. <laughs> and my teammate said, Touch the plate, touch the plate. And if that TV show was out during that time, I would have said, What you talking about, Moose? But it wasn't <laughs> out yet. But I did touch the plate. And the umpire said, you're safe. What? My impact caused baby Shaq to drop the ball. So I I was safe. He dropped the ball. (laughs) And that run through the wall, run through challenges, mindset, played a role in my love of football. And I played little league. I played high school. I played college uh, won the national championship in 1981, Widener University. Yes, I wore number 22. Tried out for three pro football teams, did not make it, and finally settled for my first corporate job as a copywriter in our marketing department because my undergrad degree was in English. I went on to get my master's in journalism and then eventually get my doctorate um, in business administration with a research study of authenticity at work. All from running into baby (laughs) child. Yes. Like ice cream dripping down a cone on a 300 degree day. Yes. And my friends would say, of course you did that. Of course you did. (laughs) You weren't going to try to fake him out and run around. You said Mm -hmm. it's possible. I'm standing outside in phone booths in the snow waiting for the taxi. Mm -hmm. 
baby Shaq, getting ready yeah. for you. You've been running through walls your whole life, man. Here's a, another spin on that. Mom calls me one day. I'm in the car. I'm sitting in the parking lot of Wegmans. And she called me. She said, you have a copy of your book with you? Of course, Mom, I carry my books with me all the time. I said, no, no, I'm serious. Said, yeah, Mom, they're in the trunk. Why? I want you to uh, turn to page 32. Like, why, Mom? There's a misspelling. And what could I do now? You can call your publisher and tell them immediately that your mother said, make the, t- <laughs> make the change. <laughs> and then later on, James, we're on the phone and she asked me, you know, how are things going? I said, Mom, you know me. You know me. I'm knocking down every challenge, knocking down every wall. And she said, you know, occasionally it's all right to walk around the wall rather than knocking it down. It may save you a few years in your life. I'm like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay. Got to make the adjustment. <laughs> Make no, one, no one sent for you, mom. No one's. Sent- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's 80. She is still doing well. 80 going on 20. And back in 2018, I did the unfathomable. I faced one of my fears. I went skydiving and things worked out. Um, long story short, I'm not even going to get into it, but I did successfully land and I called her. Afterwards, I didn't call her beforehand because I thought she would say, don't do it. Yep. I called her afterwards. I told her I did it. It's like, wow, you beat me to it. I want to do it. I want to do it. Before I leave this earth, I'm going skydiving. And I'm glad you did it so you could tell me all about it. I'm like, what? <laughs> of course she said it. Of course. Yeah, of course. You beat me to it. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> I love it. <clears throat> I love it. So, so we're playing football. Um, and, and was football the goal at the time? You're like, Hey, I really do want to like, I'm gunning for the pros and yeah. like everything else was option B real simple, real simple. James here was the dream play pro football, retire and do a combination of write for sports illustrated, go back to my high school and teach English and coach football and in my spare time, do the booth at Monday Night Football. And that would be it. Sports Illustrated, coach football, teach English, and do Monday Night Football with my background degree in English and journalism. Yeah. Well, it didn't work out that way. Didn't make the pros. Didn't make uh, Monday Night Football. I did submit several articles to Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. And they said they were good, but they weren't Sports Illustrated ready that I should be a stringer for some neighborhood newspapers or in fact, travel outside Philadelphia, go to a different state, different city and get some experience writing sports and then come back. And I was impatient. I didn't want to do that. So I looked for a job and got my real first job working for the Prudential Insurance Company of America mm. as a copywriter in the marketing department. And our client was... AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons, and I'm a proud AARP member now. <laughs> <laughs> the world comes full circle. Anybody yeah, else no. who was about to say his client was going to be Sports Illustrated? <laughs> That's what I was. <clears throat> That's awesome. So th- that, yeah. that was the goal. Mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to give back. Our, our high school, although I was in a great program, it was called Motivation. It was geared for college-bound students. It was a high school that was half near Drexel's campus, Drexel University, and half in the hood. 
And the part of the hood it was near was called The Bottom. Because you imagine living in a place called The Bottom. And our, our, our football field or our field behind the school where we practiced was 50 yards of dirt, glass, cement, uh, rocks. And when we practiced varsity, junior varsity football, varsity, junior varsity soccer, varsity, junior varsity field hockey, all on the field at the same time practicing. <laughs> no home games. Wow. The only home games we had were basketball, baseball, and football. Every game was on the road. Talk about character building. That's why I don't do excuses. <clears throat> I lived a life of challenge. What? Yeah. Talk about it, brother. Talk about it. No <laughs> home games. That's crazy. Um <laughs> <laughs> we never had a homecoming. We had a go coming, not a yeah, homecoming, right. a go coming. We're going to yeah, go yeah. to somebody else's place. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is, uh, that, uh, that's impressive. Um, <laughs> that is different than the way I grew up, believe it or not. Mm. Uh, and uh, you tell, do tell, give me a little, give me a little about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I just, we just, you know, I grew up uh, upper middle class, right? Uh, <clears throat> I wasn't, I wasn't sitting in the phone booth. Uh, the only time I was going to phone booth is then, uh, you know, I, my mom was still cheap though, even though we had a little bit of money. <laughs> so my mom, whenever, whenever I left golf practice, she said, I want you to call me collect, um, call me collect from the phone booth. Um, but uh, instead of, uh, I'm not going to accept the call, but you just say ready to be picked up when they say, what's your name? <laughs> And so, <laughs> good. That's good. So we're ready to be, and then I just like had to hope that my mom answered the phone. I had no idea, um, and uh, and then she would hang up on me, and I would just like wait and be like, "Well, we'll see if she was." I don't even know if she was home, um, but yeah. Uh, but uh, that's about the closest I got to perseverance um, as a young kid. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, you know, I, I you know, the, you know, the phrase started the, from the bottom. Now we're here. Uh, I, I like, I'm more akin to the phrase of started from here and now I'm here. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's, just, you know, that's, and you can't help the way you grew up or, or what you, uh, you know, what you, what your parents did. My dad also, uh, ironically worked for Prudential, but he was on the insurance side of, of stuff, the broker side or the underwriting yeah. side. Um, and, uh, uh, so yeah, that's funny. Y'all may, you'll very good chance that you worked at Prudential at the same time. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean that's just that that's that's the world that uh, that I grew up in uh, yeah. for sure. And so, but you can't you can't help the way that you grew up, and, and it was what it was. And I, and I would say that because I was raised um, uh, certainly with a, a silver spoon in my mouth, um, the concept of being grateful for what I had and working hard for everything that I wanted wasn't necessarily something that was taught. It was something I had to learn, right? Because it wasn't, it wasn't a daily practice. Um, and it's not to say that I was spoiled. We just had enough, right? We, we had what we needed. Um, you know, my parents weren't out there buying me everything I wanted. You know, I wanted to, I asked for every single video console that came out. I want a Nintendo, then a Sega Genesis, and a Super Nintendo. <laughs> then I wanted an N64, then I want, right? And like, they would never get me anything. They never got, so by the time I got my first job as an RA in college, I said, I'm buying an Xbox. Um, and <laughs> spent my whole first paycheck on an Xbox just out of spite. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I mean, but still like that, that was my quote unquote struggle was that mom wouldn't buy me a Nintendo. Right. Um, that's funny. <laughs> what I love about what you're saying and this, I hope people are listening closely because when George Floyd was murdered, 
a number of my white friends and white colleagues reached out to me and said, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And here I am listening to you saying upper middle class, things materialized, wasn't hard, but you are probably, if not the most, one of the most woke white American people that I know. And you didn't have to be, you Mm -hmm. chose to be. But when all these folks called me up, what to do, what to do, it was bittersweet because I'm thinking, why don't you know what to do? You can run with the bulls. You can go mountain climbing, hiking, bungee jumping, plan vacations, plan weddings. And you don't know how to be empathetic with a person of color? What? It was bittersweet. And as I hear your story, and I already thought you were so woke and you know, you're very principled and I'm looking at your background, the Black Lives Matter. That's one of the reasons why you got that crazy heart to heart hug, because I believe in heart hugs. I was hugging you because I'm like, I love this guy. Mm-hmm. I love him. I've only known him for a few years, but he is. Ev- Vander Holyfield wasn't the real deal. James is the real deal. Okay. All right. I'm just saying. Oh, shoot. <clears throat> take, take a whole new level to uh, bending people's ears with the Evander Holyfield reference. Um, That's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, thank you, man. I, I did that. I did that because I was a temp. I was a temp, so I want to make sure I did that. <laughs> My terrible version imitation of Mike Tyson. I, pre- I, I appreciated it. I appreciated right. it. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you thank you for the love man i appreciate it uh but you know you talk about uh it's a, a cool segue because you know you do talk about um in your in your work you talk about diversity equity and inclusion and uh that wasn't necessarily something that you were always passionate about or something that you that you just uh you lived right <laughs> just what uh you lived on, on on both sides of the coin and and you know as someone in corporate america um who was making real money uh, but someone who grew up the way that you did um and and looked the way you did, lived the way you did and whatnot. So, uh, you know, how did you go from being in corporate America to this being a passion area of yours that so much so that you left corporate America and decided to get on some stages to talk about it? Yeah. Growing up, I was in a number of situations where I realized my race was not the best tool in the box. Um, My middle school was in a neighborhood that people would call poor white trash, but it was a school for smart kids. And me and a couple of friends, we used public transportation to travel into a seedy part of Philadelphia that was called Kingsington. And there were a number of teenagers, boys, uh, white guys who had dropped out of school And every day they woke up to beat up the black kids who traveled into school. And if they didn't get us in the morning when we traveled home, they would attempt to beat us up before we got to the train station. So I experienced that for two years. That was Mm -hmm. egregious. Went on to high school, all black high school, graduated in the top 5%. Went to college, all white high school. I mean, all white college, very, very different. And that's when I, in order to fit in, I accepted the the nickname Jim. And I went from James to Jim. I wanted to fit in. So I knew after college, 
moving into corporate, which was predominantly white, that I had to really make a difference. I had to stand out. And as my mother once said, people have guns. Don't give them bullets. And you give them a bullet when you're late, when you don't turn an assignment, when you're not where you're supposed to be, when you're out after midnight, because nothing good happens after midnight. Mm -hmm. You are representing, unfortunately, you are representing your race. Because when minorities fail, they fail as a group. When they succeed, they succeed as individuals. So if you mess up, they're not going to say, ah, he's a bad guy. They're going to say, see, they can't do it around here. They can't perform. They can't make it happen. That was my mindset throughout corporate. And then eventually I would say, I think it was my seventh or eighth year in my manager came to me with a special project. You remember those special projects? Those <laughs> building opportunity, quote-unquote. Yes, <laughs> promotion-centric opportunities. Yes. She, she asked me to head our organization's diversity council and play a role in helping the organization during this initiative. And I'm not going to bore you with the long story how that came to fruition, but essentially she asked me three times, to do it. And I said, why me? And the three excuses were round one, a lot of training. You're the best trainer in the organization. Number two, a lot of travel. You love to travel. Number three, a lot of corporate reports quarterly, uh, substantiating what we're doing, highlighting what we're doing, measuring what we're doing. And finally, she came clean and said, because you're black and we want a black person of color heading our initiative. I didn't take it right away. I need to think about it for a number of reasons, but I did take it. And I'm retrospect, I'm glad I, I did it. And it's been part of one of the offerings that my organization provides for organizations who are serious about DE and I. I turn work down. I don't want to be an event. I don't want to be a check off. We did it. I want organizations who are serious, going to roll up their sleeves, do some heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. And if it means saying bye to people who aren't going to adhere to this new culture of inclusion, then you got to go. So I've been doing, doing it since and a lot of lumps, a lot of bumps, but a lot of um, smiles and, and, and making differences in people's lives as well. Yeah. That's beautiful. And what a journey to get there too. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously your lived experience. It's your lived story yeah. but that, I think it's also important that you know this as we're both speakers, whenever you see a uh, a person who is black or a person of color who is a speaker, there's this assumption that this is the work that they do um, just because it's their lived experience. And yeah. uh, and that is wrong. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Uh, that is wrong. It's wrong to assume that uh, it's wrong to immediately put those people in boxes and, and whatnot. And uh, yet, this is something that you have decided to do. Um, and it not, it's not, it's not everybody's journey. And you also do a lot of other stuff, right? You talk about leadership, you talk about uh, presence, you talk about, you know, presenting presentation skills, like you have a whole bunch of other stuff that you, that you also discuss, but this is a piece of the work that is your, uh, that is your career. It, uh, it is, it is. It's live, lived experience. And now as an adult, 60 year old speaker, author, professional, 
every day I'm looking for the lesson. I'm looking for content. I'm looking for something to happen to me or someone else that I can chronicle, write a lesson, create a title, now have a story. I wish growing up that I was smart enough to be looking for lessons. I remember things, but I wish I would have had my iPhone out, iPhone back in the 60s and 70s. And I wish I would have had my notepad out (laughs) down and journal. This happened on this day. This is how I felt. This has how I was contributing to my evolution. So it's a good thing my memory is still intact. But yes, lived experiences, so many. And when I'm teaching presentation skills, James, and I teach storytelling, and I'm, I, I love storytelling. You're a masterful storyteller as well. I teach a model that's called R squared, and okay. it stands for retell and relive. And I find that a lot of speakers, a lot of leaders, they tell stories, but they retell it. They don't relive them. Mm -hmm. And reliving them means going back to what happened. And as you're telling it, doing and saying and acting it out. When I tell the story about my dad staggering down 46th Street, I don't say my dad was staggering down to 46th Street until he got home. Like my dad. And then he would eventually get to the, I become my dad. I relive it. And when you relive it, the emotions are greater. The audience better connects with you because, catch this, they can see yep. what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you at least once have said to someone, you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So as a storyteller, I want people to feel, see, and hear what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. And you, I mean, you are, I mean, you've already obviously demonstrated that even on our time here in the diner, uh, the way that you, <laughs> the way that you weave a tapestry uh, with your words uh, and, and paint these beautiful pictures. Um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. You really, you do truly bring people in. Uh you know, it's one thing I wanted to t- ask you about is that there's something that potentially could be seen as contradictory in, in what you and what you've been talking about about your upbringing, about, uh, you know, if you if you want it, you could be it. If you if you if you need if you just, it's about it's about the will. It's about the it's about the determination to be able to get out, to be able to do the things you want to do. Um, one thing that we often that you often hear when people talk about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion work, that is the opposite sometimes of that work is the pick me up by our bootstraps kind of thing uh, mm-hmm. mentality. And, and I would love to hear you kind of talk about the difference between those two, why that's such a problematic thing to tell people just, well, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just go and do it. Right. Like what's the difference between that mentality versus what you're talking about, which is the, uh, you know, you, you got to have, you got to set a goal and you got to try to reach it yeah. uh, with everything. Cause there's a difference between those two that I think is important for us to highlight. I've heard that shared a number of times and I chuckle because everyone's accountable for what they do based on what has happened. We might not be in control of what, per se, happens to us, the weather, so forth. But we're in control of how we handle that. And that's the bootstrap mindset for me and what I coach others on. Play the hand that you're dealt. 
Now, first of all, you might have to get some boots to strap them or get some boots and then get the straps. And strapping up your boots, acknowledge that your path to the goal may be more challenging. So it's not just a matter of picking yourself up. To me, it's a matter of consistently picking yourself up. Mm-hmm. The, the, the parallel in football, they have the, what's called the YAC, Y-A-C, the YAC stands for yards after contact. So once you catch the ball or run the ball, once you're hit, how many yards do you get after contact? For me, that's the same with pulling yourself by your bootstrap. How far do you go after you've been hit with microaggressions, hit with prejudice, hit with all the isms? And folks who, yes, still pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And these are folks who I'm saying that don't come from underrepresented groups. Mm-hmm. Many don't acknowledge that they don't face the same or the same level of challenge that others are. Because I have white friends who say, I was pulled over. I was pulled over. But were you afraid to die? (laughs) (laughs) You were pulled over. It's okay, officer, what do you want? I'm pulled over, hands on the wheel. You know, officer, (laughs) my hands are up here. I'll tell you one more, James. I have two sons, one 29, one 16. One's my bonus son. I never say stepson. One's my biological son. They both are autistic. They both are nonverbal. And if you round autistic folks from time to time, depending on where they are on the spectrum, they might move back and forth. They may stem. They may go, ah. And during this one drive home with the oldest in the front and the youngest in the back, I think the oldest was maybe early 20s at this point. My other son was less than 10, I believe. And I'm driving and I see the light, the police officer's car. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I pulled over and I'm thinking, this may not have a happy ending. I have my sons here. They may start making noise. The officer might become afraid and shoot first, ask questions second. Mm-hmm. And when he pulled us over and I rolled my window down, he came up and he said, can I see your license? And officer, before I give my license, I have my two sons. They're both autistic, nonverbal. They may start moving in. I just wanted to let you know. I just wanted to let, please, just wanted to let you know that that might happen. And he said, okay, check my license. And basically said, just check your taillight. It's out. You need a new one. Be safe. I'm going to pray for you and your sons. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. White white police officer, and I was extremely, call it attention convention. There's a lot of tension there as he pulled up because three black guys in the car and two were acting up. And I go back to your original question, the whole bootstraps. It's a fallacy to believe that life is the same for all groups. Mm -hmm. And yes, having a phenomenal, sick, ridiculous work ethic is beneficial for everybody. For some, having that ridiculous work ethic, that indefatigable zeal for work where you're tireless and you're always there, sometimes it's not enough. It's not enough. 
we, we, we say that when things happen to you, sometimes it's comparable to a vector, a force with movement in direction, but you can't see it. And for some, the vector feels like a tailwind pushing you. And for others, the tailwind, the, the, the vector feels like a headwind. You're walking into it. You get there eventually, but it's slower, but you feel it, but you can't see it. And that's why when you say to your leadership, I'm working hard, I'm doing the same thing, but it's not happening for me. Keep working hard. And others, wow, you're, how'd you get that? I'm working hard. Uh, something else is there. You live with a tailwind. That's, that's just my philosophy on pulling up from bootstraps and, and making the assumption that if I give my best, I'm going to get my best. I believe that when you give your best, you create possibilities for amazing things to happen. And I live my life that way. And when I do workshop and I speak to high schools and college students, I tell them, don't blame the culture. Don't blame the economy. Don't blame the world. Shake them up. Give them something to think about. Be the first. Be the pioneer. And then pave the way for others to join you at the party. Mm. Yeah. First off, I didn't expect a physics lesson dropping vectors <laughs> in here. <laughs> but I love I love that analogy, right? Where as someone who is born uh, you know, straight white, uh, with more than enough, uh in uh in, in it's you know, a, a safe suburban town, right? Like I, I most certainly had a tailwind. Um, right. <clears throat> um and you know, I I had parents that told me to live and live and follow my dreams. Um, and, and I could do that without having to worry about uh, true failure because there was stability around me, right? This other people, when they follow their dreams, when they fail, it, it looks a lot different than if I had failed. Yeah. Um, and it's not to say that my parents would have, you know, funded me or whatnot. You know, they would have told me to get my shit together still. Um, but, uh, <laughs> right. But they, you know, they could take me back in for a little while. They could take me, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's just different. Right. And that, that, so yeah, that, that privilege is, is sometimes a tailwind in those situations. So yeah. I appreciate you articulating that. Cause that's something that you'd always hear just, ah, just pick yourself up by your bootstraps <laughs> and figure it out. And like, well, there's, there's other things at play. Um, and two people working the exact same at the exact same tenacity um, <clears throat> that look differently may wind up at two different places because of that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's spot on. Beautifully spot put. on. Beautifully I mean, this put. is Women's History Month. You do your 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 most recent research on the economy and, and income, and you'll see that women still make eighty two cents to every man's dollar mm -hmm. doing the same job. Yep, same job. We thought about doing a gender reveal uh, because, uh, first off, those are problematic, but that's fine. But uh, <laughs> but we thought about doing a gender reveal where <laughs> uh, we would have a piggy bank. Um, and uh, if it's a boy, there'd be a dollar. And if it was a girl, there'd be 82 cents. In there. <laughs> <laughs> then our son, then our son came out. We're like, ah, that hits different because it's a boy. Uh, but if it was a girl, that would, you know, we, I think we would have done that. <laughs> now, 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 when he grows up, he's probably going to miss curfew a few times. And you're going to say, come on, man, get it right. Mm -hmm. Let her miss curfew. You're grounded for three years Get in the house before midnight. Your son, make a muscle. You're strong. Words don't hurt. Big boys don't cry. Come here, baby. 
come on, sweetheart, princess, you're going to be okay. What are we doing and how we're raising and coaching and, quote, grammatically incorrect, but I love it anyway, and that is they become who you be. Mm. So as you are being, they are becoming. So how are you treating them and what are they turning into? Someone who's going to run through walls or someone who's going to make sure everyone is taken care of, providing the support, providing the shoulder. Why can't they both do both? Yeah. 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 That's real. That's real. You know, you, uh, you have all these stories, you have these experiences that you live, Dr. James. And, uh, and so many of them, you know, you still keep bringing up your, your dad and your, and your mom and, and the way that you were raised. Uh, I'm wondering how does it shape, uh, how does it shape who you are today as a parent? When you think about showing up as, uh, as yourself as a parent, you know, how, how, you know, you mentioned that just because I saw this doesn't mean that's who I'm going to be. Right. I made the choice. Uh, but there were parts of your dad that you absolutely loved. And there's parts of your mother that you love. There's also parts of your mom that you say were like, Oh, those are tough, right? Those are super <laughs> tough on me. And yes, you could see the benefits of that as an adult, but you can also see some of the stories that you started to write about yourself as a child as well, that you had had have had to work through. Um, yeah. And so as someone who's a new father, I always, I'm always in, intrigued by uh, asking this question of how did, how did some of those stories shape who you are today as a parent? I'll give you a couple examples. Number one, and this example where my, my wife and I would sometimes vehemently disagree <laughs> on how our, our our younger guy should be raised. I mean, he was two and three years old and she was holding his hands going up and down the stairs. I'm like, he could walk. He's on the spectrum, but he can walk. Let him walk. Let him learn. Let him fall down. No, he doesn't need to fall down. I learned from falling down. Mm-hmm. I wanted him, even though he was nonverbal, he's still... God willing, would grow up into a fine man who knows how to navigate steps, navigate the house without having a coach or having someone with him all the time. And I, I think about my, my daughter, who is now 26 years old. She just joined the company. Yay. Just got married last year. Yay. When I, when I think about how she grew up, private schools, Montessori school. And then when she got to ninth grade, my wife at the time and I, who were going through a divorce, business was slow and we did not have enough money to keep her in private school. Mm-hmm. I wanted to meet my ex halfway and she wanted me to pay for the entire thing. Had the conversation with my daughter, told her that, you know, she's going to have to go to public school. And she said, Daddy, let's give it a try. I've never been in public school, but let's give it a try. And after the first year is over, it's time for 10th grade. Business has turned around. I'm ready to put her into private school. I can pay for the whole thing. And she said, Daddy, I want to stay in public school. This is the real world. I'm learning about life. We're in the private school. We get everything. We have the best of everything. I lived that life. And I'm usually the only black person at the school. This school is diverse. 
this character building. I'm not a big person on campus, but I need to be grounded. I think I cried. I call it a tissue issue, a tissue issue. Like, look at her. She wants the test so that she can have a testimony. She wants the mess to help with her message. And there's no secret that she's working for me now. She's doing all our social media. And if she makes a post and I don't say, baby girl, that was awesome. You're like, hold up. Was it good? Was it bad? Talk to me. Communicate. You're an English major, right? So my parenting, and by and large, is a product of how I was raised. Mm -hmm. And I I had to check myself a few times because if my daughter brought home straight A's and a B, my focus would be on the B rather than the straight A's. And that's right from how I was raised. So I made some adjustments, but yeah, it played a role in how I parent, how I lead, how I coach, what I share with my audience members and customers. Stop whining. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded about when Kobe and Shaq were at practice and Shaq was upset because Kobe kept shooting the ball, shooting the ball. And he said, Kobe, there's no I in team. And Kobe said, I know, but there's an I in win. So I'm going to help us win. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. So I have to realize, and I coach my daughter, if it's going to happen, yes, you want to be part of a team. But you play a key role in being accountable for what you're responsible for. And we don't do victim vocabulary. We don't say the word try. We don't say one day, eventually, sometimes when I get around to it, we say, now, get it done now. Always work on your TAN. And TAN is T-A-N, and it stands for Take Action Now. As a white boy, I need to work on my tan in multiple ways. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, wow. Yeah, wow. I love that. I, you know, and and hearing how some of those things from your your youth, how they drove that, um, and even even now as you are successful, right? You you are you you have more than enough food uh, or money to put food on the table, and uh, right, your the, your daughter's wedding was beautiful, and and you were able to help out, and you know, like all the right, like I mean, it's just it was incredible, right? That like you have you've built a life that is different than the one that you knew. Um, yeah. and, uh, and you've built this safe place to, to be able to raise children with special needs in the most supportive way possible. Um, because you know, they, it takes a little more time, takes a little more money, takes a little more resources in order to truly be able to take care of those folks the way they need to be taken care of. Um, patience and, and prayer, patience and prayer are significant as well. Yeah, for sure. Patience, prayer, and paper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's on a roll. He's on a roll. You can't stop him. Get out of his way. I must be butter, baby. So, um, <laughs> but the, uh, but right, you've, you've been able to build this and that's, and that's incredible. Um, and so the last thing that I want to talk to you about is something that we're both passionate about, which is authenticity. Um, and uh, not everybody gets to show up and, and be their authentic self. Uh, because for whatever reason they need to, uh, 
either either they've written a story themselves of I need yeah. to do this in order to fit in, or society has written the story for them of like, hey, if you could code switch a little bit um, and and talk a little bit more like this or dress a little more like that, then you'll probably be able to have your hair look more like this, and you'll probably be able to get a little bit further or make some more people feel quote unquote comfortable um, so that they can see you as X, Y, or Z, right? Women have to do this a lot. Um, and, uh, and obviously uh, people of color for sure have to do this, you know, people who are, uh, who love uh, people of their same gender have to do this, right? Like, and, and so, um, so authenticity is fascinating. Something that we're both very passionate about and, uh, you've been able to cultivate a life where you are now allowed to live out loud, um, and you've created a successful business where you are the CEO and the owner. Um, and uh, so you've been able to create a business and a life where you are allowed to show up authentic uh, wherever you want. But that hasn't always been like that. Um, and so, you know, I'm wondering, authenticity is a gift to be able to just show up as you are. Uh, but it, it bothers me that it's something that has to be earned for some folks. Um, how would you speak to that? Yeah. Um, when I started my research on authenticity, I did it because a lot of the participants during my sessions would say I'm one way at home and I'm one way at work. And I, I, I wondered why couldn't they be one way all the time? And actually, I, I thought they were chicking it out. And I wasn't thinking about the number of years in corporate where I went along. Did they go along to get along? I just went along. Um, I didn't speak truth to power because I thought if I did, exit interview, HR, and I'm gone. I kept my mouth shut a lot. But I kept getting that, having that premonition around, explore this thing called authenticity. But I did, and after years of studying, I, I, I graduated thinking that authenticity wasn't a matter of either or authentic or inauthentic. It was a matter of degrees of authenticity, more or less. And given the situation, you either turned up or turned down. Because I don't believe, based on my research, that we can be, that we can say that we are authentic mm. or we are inauthentic. I believe we can say I was authentic in that moment, mm. but I may not be as authentic the next time. James, if you asked me what I did over the weekend and I said, you know, just chill. I can give you more authenticity. I chilled with three guys. I sat at the pool. I had some IPAs and some suicidally hot hot wings. <laughs> I can fill in the blanks. Yeah. But I believe that being your best you means being more authentic most of the time. It means speaking truth to power. It means recognizing that sometimes that truth to power is going to come with a penalty because whoever, wherever you shared your truth, they didn't want to hear it. So now you're wounded. However, if you're really your best, the majority of the time you learn to walk with the wound. You're lighter when you share your truth more. You don't feel all that tension and heaviness. Because listen, a baseball from game seven of the World Series, that's authentic ball. It's <laughs> not changing. A 
Persian rug, jewelry, a painting, that's authentic, but we as adults evolve and become every day. Given your circumstance, given the situation, I encourage you to consider when and where can I be more authentic? And if I can't be it here, I'm not going to blame them. I'm going to go someplace where I can be. And eventually that's what led me to starting my own business. And funny, during my research, I talked to a lot of senior leaders asking them on a scale of one to 10, how, how authentic are you on a daily basis? One being terrible and 10 being phenomenal. You are the authentic whisperer. Some of them said three and four. And they're senior leaders. They don't give you everything you want. Sometimes I give you what you want to hear. I'm probably more authentic one-on-one than I am standing in front of the entire organization or during a town meeting. I share what I believe you need to hear. I'm thinking, wow, so they're three or four, they're senior leaders. And you have people from underrepresented groups who cover and they're three and four. This workplace is full of trick-or-treaters. Every day is Halloween where people (laughs) are putting on masks and trick-or-treating for a performance and results. Yeah. So I strongly encourage people know that speaking up, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee could cost you your career. It could. You have to determine what's best for you to share your truth, to be the best possible version of you as often as possible, or as they say, go along and get along, fake it till you make it. What? And yes, people still do that. So I think authenticity is a phenomenal construct. I'm going to continue to encourage people to be the best versions of themselves as as often as possible. But really defining it and living it is like picking up a bar of soap in the shower. It's tough to grasp because we live in a world where coaches, politicians, teachers, sports reporters, journalists, they don't always share their truth. James, you're the coach of the, ah, gosh, the Los Angeles Rams Super Bowl just two weeks ago. Who did they beat? Who did the Rams just beat in the Super Bowl? Bengals? The Bengals with Icky Wood. No, Icky played in the day. But uh, the Bengals coach, they interviewed him. So what happened in the game? Coach, what happened in the game? I have to do a better job of putting my team in position to win. In the locker room, what happened? You dropped that ball. You fumbled. In front of the camera, I had to do a better job to help our team win. It was my fault. I didn't call the right plays. Hey, come on, dude. But he knows if he comes clean, if he throws his player under the bus, the media is going to kill him, and they're going to kill him for not sharing his truth. He's going to lose his teammate, going to lose the trust. So in actuality, how authentic can we be on a daily basis mm-hmm. it's up to the individual yeah yes i love the the idea that uh, uh it's authentic moments yes right? authentic moments yes. as opposed to you know consistently living authenticity i mean you know this this is a game out here Right, the workplace is a game. Politics is a game. Social, social life is a game, um, and and you have to play it. The more authentically you can play it, yes, the happier you are, the lighter you are, um, and and whatnot. Uh, but at the same time, 
you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, safety and security are at the bottom. Because if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel secure, then you aren't, you're not getting this authenticity. Um, right. Like I'm going to, I'm going to act in accordance in a way that I believe will be the safest for me right now. Uh, It's a basic human need. It's a gut, it's an instinct. Uh, and it's, uh, it's powerful the way that you phrase that. And I, I loved hearing you talk about it. Thank you. You're welcome. And, and you and I know full well in this digital age we're living in, where people have done their research on us and they know more about us and our family before we say, welcome to the opportunity. Welcome to my presentation. The world doesn't want phony, fake or pretend speakers. They can see right through that. They want us to live what we give. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, it's going to bite us in the butt. People are very learned and sharper these days, and they can smell ambiguity. They can smell fake. They can smell pretend like mm-hmm. that. And yeah. what might have worked for us in the past, there's too much technology. There's too much information out there to get us to continue. It'll, it'll come back. Yeah. It'll come back to bite us. You're right. You're right. Dr. James Smith Jr. It has been a pleasure. My James friend. Robo, Robo. I truly mean this. You hear it from everybody. My brother from another mother, my sister from another <laughs> mister. Listen, your name is James. I'm James. You are my brother <laughs> from another mother. Honor. Yeah. Honored. Yeah, I felt a, an instant connection with you. Uh, and if, if, I, if I had any questions, the hug sealed it. Uh, <laughs> now, what would have happened if I would have hugged you and started patting on you and back like you're my grandson? <laughs> I would have I walked away with my tail between my legs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. James Smith, can you let people know where uh, where can they find you? How can people stay in touch with you if they want to learn more about the work that you do in this world? Absolutely. All social media at Dr. James Smith, Jr. Website, drjamesmithjr.com. Website. Yeah, that's the website, social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Dr. James Smith, Jr. I think I'm going to uh, add to it. Hashtag the diner's favorite diner. I, I might add that to it. Because I'm loving dining with the king of diners. James Robo. Yes. I respect it. I think it's great. I'm here for it. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's so it's so great hanging out with you. Um, thank you for your stories. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your truth. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for just dropping dropping a lot of great nuggets on us today. It's so so fun kicking it with you. I appreciate you coming to the diner, my man. <laughs> James Robo, can I drop one more real quick? Let's go. Quote: You always get what you've always gotten until you become the person you've never been. It's time for you to be that person. That's it. That's it. Go be that person. Go be that person. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Y'all, that was Dr. James Smith Jr. Coming in the diner and shutting it down, y'all. That was incredible. Uh, so many stories. So many rhyming. I got a tissue issue. I got a, I'm got. i at a tension convention. I'm at a, I don't even know. I can't even think of all the, the other ones, but there's a bunch of them. Uh, and the wordplay was on point. Uh, and more importantly, uh, the wisdom was there. 
and, and just the way that he spoke about things that we normally talk about, whether it's, you know, whenever we see someone who's a little bit different than us, grew up different than us, loves a little different than us. And, and, we can't just tell that person to just figure it out and pick you up by bootstrap. There's different forces at play um, in that. Uh, and thinking about the vector, the tailwind, the, 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 uh, the, the headwind that some people face based on how they came up and what they look like and how they love and how they believe uh, is powerful. Uh, thinking about authenticity um, and that you can be authentic in certain moments, uh, but maybe you can't be authentic at all times. This is why we love spending time with the people that we love, because we don't have to think about things. And in other areas of life, we do need to think about how we show up and how it's going to impact us and what are people going to think about us. And uh, yeah, uh, just so many nuggets in here. I hope that you all have hanging out with Dr. James Smith Jr. as much as I did. And uh, friends, until next time, do me a favor. Keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. You all take care. Y'all, it was so much fun kicking it in the diner with you. And I would say our timing was right about perfect because I just finished the last few drops of my milkshake. Listen, y'all, you would do my self-esteem a huge favor. If wherever you listen to podcasts, if you could leave a rating, if you could subscribe, if you could leave a comment, a review, anything like that, that is how we get this podcast into more people's ears. And if you want to stay in touch with the podcast elsewhere, we are Diner Talks with James on Instagram. Pretty original, huh? I agree. Also, if you want to hang out with me, Just individually on more places, I am James T. Robo all over the internet. Y'all had a blast with you. I appreciate you. Take care and stay great.